Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and today we're joined again by our good friend Dave Pott from the Inland Water Route for a continuation of last week's episode about the Inland Waterway. It's funny you talk about the the trains. Um, I know on, in the eighteen, I think it was eighteen eighty six, mm-hmm. there were eight thousand tickets sold just from Batoski to Bayview. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and that's the only the railroad called them suburban trains, but they did in one of their schedules uh, at the turn of the last century. The only train they called a dummy was the train back and forth to um, Bayview, and. We had as many or more commuter trains in the Petoskey, Harbor Springs, Emmett, Sheboygan County uh, than even Detroit uh, had. They had their own station in Petoskey next to the station that, that's there now. Uh, it's, it's now a parking lot, but uh, it was very really an extensive system. And we've got to remember, we're talking about the 1880s. There were no automobiles. There wouldn't be any automobiles for another 20 years and really any affordable automobiles for another 30 years. The roads were terrible. At best, there were two tracks, sand, weren't a lot of horses. And uh, it was a way to get around. And, you know, if you wanted to shop in Harbor Springs for the day, you just got on and it was like 15 cents or 25 cents round trip. And Harbor Springs, or you could go to Wilanson and or go to Odin and, and, and take the steamboat. So um, it was quite an extensive system. Yeah, it's uh, the, the hub here in Petoskey was the second busiest hub next to uh, Detroit. Detroit, that's correct. And yeah. that's that's full time. Yeah. Twelve months of industry right. and transit. Yeah. And we yeah. only have summer summertime yep, up here. Exactly. I actually have pictures of day trippers loading up right in Pencil, Pennsylvania Park, right, mm-hmm. right in downtown Petoskey. Yes. And heading out to Odin. Right. And they're all wearing all that Victorian garb. Right. They've right. got a couple of trees that they stuck in the in the sides of these old rail carts. Uh-huh. Actually, old old uh, uh, you know lumber lumber uh, carts that they were cut in half and they mm-hmm. put seats in them. Mm-hmm. And now it's a tourist train uh, yep. to go up and spend yeah, the afternoon yeah, in, yeah. in Odin or yeah. The tourist trains or the the um, suburban trains, dummy trains were pretty simple affairs. Uh, little locomotives. It was a a four four two configuration, which meant it had four wheels in the front which are the bogey wheels and then four drive wheels and then no wheels over the cab. And it was a push me, pull me kind of affair um, because there was no round table in Harbor Springs or a Lanson. So it had a big light on the front of the locomotive and then one over the tender. So it would reach Harbor or a Lanson and then just back up. So, um, and the seats were wooden, as you said, and there was no vestibule between cars, and that's that system that you can walk between the cars. So it was a simple affair, but really effective. So as the, as the lumber began to be depleted throughout Michigan, obviously there was a, a need to try to bring people back here. Several railroad companies actually underwrote the cost of the building of summer resorts and hotels in northern Michigan as they looked for ways to keep the lines, the rail lines viable. Uh, in the early years, uh, the, the hotels they built often did not make money. The oncoming tourism boom really began as it replaced the, the lumbering era. But like the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, for instance, they, they didn't make any money uh, at the hotel. It was the transit back and forth of people. That's keeping, my keeping understanding, those, those. yes. And the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad, as we've mentioned, uh, they were awarded hundreds of thousands of acres, like several different rail companies in, in, uh, in Michigan. Um, I think it was upwards of 800,000 acres they were awarded to try to keep the, the lines viable. Yeah, that's really how they, they underwrote the railroads, giving them th- that land. You know, it's 
you know, very similar to our transcontinental railroad, you know, uh, you know, miles on each side. And the citizens of Harbor Springs, when the when the lines were being built to Harbor Springs, actually helped uh, lay down uh, some of the uh, track and right away. It was, you know, because it was that was a lifeline. Again, no cars, no trucks. And in the wintertime, uh, the lakes were frozen. So, you know, no transportation uh, uh, via uh, boats. So, yeah, it was very, very important. And that was actually, uh, we owe the growth of this area to uh, to the steamship lines and also the railways. We have a couple of pictures. Uh, the, the Hemingway family came here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they still continue to come, actually, um, five generations later. But Ernest Hemingway himself, as he's coming up, the first 22 summers, but when, uh, when he graduated in, in uh, 1917, the family made a, a road trip up here as, as opposed to bringing the steamships up. And instead of a 24-hour trip, it was four days, and f- five days and four nights yeah. <laughs> being up here. Was, yeah, yeah. And they said the worst part was between Traverse City and here. It was all sandy, washed-out roads. The onerous trip. Yeah, tough, a tough trip. Yeah. If, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they took usually the Northland, which uh, docked in Harbor Springs, and then they'd take the dummy train around to Petoskey and then the train to uh, Walloon and then get on one of the little steamers and go to their cottage. So, yeah, yeah in, the, in, the, in the first years, we had the, the piers were in Petoskey, mm-hmm. and because of the, the bay lane oh, east to west, the, okay. they kept getting washed out. Mm-hmm. We lost three docks in three years at the cost of 18000 bucks. Wow. So from there, the steamers always started landing in Harbor Springs, which is the deepest naturally protected harbor in, in Lake Michigan. Okay, okay. And, and the GRNI, the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad, they heavily marketed this region, like you mentioned, the fishing line uh, for tourism and, and, and wellness. We were, we were a destination for people looking to get healthy, get out of the heat of the city, fresh water, fresh air, clean air. Um, we had the lowest pollen count in all of the United States. Yeah, which was huge for hay fever people. There were, I believe, some hotels in Petoskey that catered to people, hay fever people, smaller. uh, You know, they'd come up in the spring or the fall. I don't know much about hay fever season. Yeah, the National Hay Fever Association had their headquarters here in the the Jewish Hay Fever Association. (laughs) I find it funny that there was distinct groups, you know. But yeah, we had the lowest pollen count. We had no trees. We had 68 miles of water between here and you know, Wisconsin, so there was a very fresh air. Was the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad involved in the marketing and eventual popularity of the inland water route as a summer vacation destination as well? Yeah, I, I believe they were, and, you know, they promoted a uh, the Hiawatha pageant on Round Lake, uh, which ran for 11 summers, and uh, the, the railroad sponsored that. They built a station there, and uh, it was uh, based on Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha. Very, very popular uh, presentation and uh, well-promoted and uh, well-attended. Uh, they actually went across the pond, the big pond, to Europe, right? Yeah, they did. The troop, um, uh, and they were all Native Americans, uh, the actors, they moved the uh, show to London, but unfortunately, uh, Europeans or, or at least the British weren't that interested in Native <laughs> American culture as we were. So the railroad and brought all the actors back. They sailed them back here, and uh, they started our own pageant uh, on uh, on Round Lake. Um, Round Lake is actually where the natives would drop their canoes in, and then paddle through there. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned this already. Uh, th- there's a creek called Iduna Creek that they would connect with Crooked Lake. 
Unfortunately, uh, when they laid tracks down in the early 1880s, that was blocked off. There was a culvert, you know, that the stream flowed through, but you couldn't, uh, you couldn't uh, get a, any kind of craft through there. So, yeah. That was a huge draw up here, the Hiawatha. Oh, big, big, big draw. Yeah, and they had, it was pretty complete. I mean, they, you could, you could uh, hire a fishing guide. I mean, it was a day-long thing. They had a crafts, a little booths. Um, with baskets and, you know, weaving and uh, um, uh, you could take swim lessons in, in the lake. It was, it, was, it was quite a production, yeah. Did the GR&I actually help also finance hotels along the, the water route? Yeah, um, the, the, for sure the Grand Hotel, uh, that was uh, GR&I and uh, the Detroit and Cleveland steamship line underwrote that. And again, you know, they wanted to provide a destination so people would, would go. And I think I already mentioned uh, Bayview Association. They gave them a huge plot of land, the United Methodist Church. And I think the agreement was that they would have a meeting at least once a year. And, you know, it became Bayview, the Bayview Association, which is still here today. Yeah, part of the agreement was it had to, for the price that was being offered for the property, it had to sustain itself for at least 30 years ah, okay. i think we're 148 yeah. Yeah. summers now later i think yeah. they've just they've just met their quota yeah. yeah yeah tell us about some of the the, the hotels that would have been ar- along the the waterway yeah there uh there were a number of hotels big big and and small and some of the most uh, memorable hotels on the inland route during this era were the rodden which was right on crooked lake the Inland House and uh, the Ponchuang Hotels, all three of those were on Crooked Lake. Ponchuang Hotel burned in the 50s. The Inland House, I think it was in the 70s. It was called the Inland House, then this old house, and then the Inland House. And the Rodden, um, uh, that burned in uh, the turn of the last century. Most of these hotels, because they were wooden, eventually succumbed to fire, unfortunately. <laughs> That's the same fate we, we find right here in Petoskey. Yeah. Uh, some of the hotels here in town actually burned three times. Wow. And they would be rebuilt within months. Wow. Wow. Uh, the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, for instance, was built in three months. And uh, so these hotels would burn. They'd rebuild them for the, for the mm-hmm. upcoming summer season. And right back at it, what a, you think about the, the safety hazards. Again, we talk about uh, you can't do this to rivers now, but mm-hmm. imagine the, health, uh, the safety codes uh, of the hotels back in those oh, days. Sure. There was, there was yeah. no... Yeah. They were lumber, and lumber was in abundance, you know, so they could, they could rebuild. The uh, two hotels that I think of on Burt Lake were the Buckeye House and the big Colonial Hotel, which is on Colonial Point, and later uh, became uh, a girls' camp. Mullet Lake, there were two hotels. Uh, uh, there were more than that, but the ones uh, that come to mind were the Mullet Lake House, and there's a, kind of a side story about that. And the Top and a Bee Hotel, which is originally called uh, Pike's Tavern, and that actually uh, burned in 1968. Do any of the hotels still exist? Not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, of course, the Perry, but that's not on the. It's not on the inland route. Um, um, I'm not aware of any that are still uh, still standing. All those grand hotels gone, just like like the Arlington here in town. Right, exactly. I um, guess the the, the Perry's uh, um, declaration that they were the first fireproof hotel has, has served them well. It's the important. Yes, yeah, important to build with brick rather than wood. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And they've had a couple small fires, but but nothing that's ever you know consumed mm-hmm. the whole building like like we obviously have seen all across northern Michigan. Sure. Yeah. The Mullet Lake House, if you have a minute, has a special story. Yeah. Uh, that was really the first hotel built on the waterway. And this was 
pre-railroad. Uh, it was built in 1880 uh, on the east side of the lake because the owner believed that the railroad would be built on the east side of the lake. However, the railroad laid tracks on the west side of Mullet Lake. So their, their, their fix for this was to build a bridge. Uh, and if you've ever been on the waterway, as the Indian River opens, widens into Mullet Lake, that's where, the, uh, that's where the hotel was. So they built a bridge that crossed it from the station to the hotel. That was a fix. So folks could get off the train and then walk to the hotel. But it wasn't really a good fix, and it, it, it didn't work. The, the hotel was eventually dismantled and carried by barges and tugs to St. Ignace and lasted for another 10 years, and I think it burned in 1896. If you're on the waterway and you're headed out into Mullet Lake, please look to the left, and you will see ancient pilings from that bridge. They're still in the water. They're made of cedar, and cedar is a natural wood that's full of oil, and, and, it, and it lasts forever. Legend has it that local folks just started to dismantle the bridge after the, the uh, uh, hotel closed and used it for their own building purposes, but the remnants are still there. Yeah, of course, you'd utilize any, any resource you could find in those Absolutely. days. Location, location, location for that hotel, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Big mistake. The waterway not only made it easier to traverse between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, it also facilitated the establishment of many summer and year-round communities along its path. I'm not sure if Toppen to be, for instance, would have been around today if it weren't for the, the waterway. No, absolutely not. No, the, the railroad and the waterway. No, it wouldn't have been there. And, you know, a resort like uh, the Columbus Beach Club, which is kind of like Bayview, it's a private association, that, that wouldn't be there. And so many cottages were built that are still standing, that, you know, that are over 100 years old. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have a picture at the museum of the Odin train station uh, just brimming over with resorters in full formal Victorian clothing. And we have talked before what it would be like if you could just step back in time for a moment uh, without Christopher Reeve or Jane Seymour. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes. uh, even just for a moment and, and, and experience what it was like uh, when Odin, you know, which is now a sleepy, quaint little uh, hamlet in northern Michigan, what it was like when it was a bustling destination for the masses. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a, a, a neat picture of the Conway uh, train station, which was smaller than the Odin station. The Odin station, you know, help service the waterway because of the steamboats. But it was a social gathering place. That's where the news came from, people getting off and on the train. They had a telegraph system. And the picture shows up a bunch of kids just kind of hanging out, you know, at the train station. So it was just a place to meet as well. Yeah, and you also have a picture, um, kind of the, the, the right with the uh, resort phenomena and lumbering was still going on. You have that one picture where the kids are swimming in the river. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you saw the, the, the lumber boat lo uh, loaded up pretty full right at that moment. Yes, yeah. Uh, what are your favorite uh, points of interest along the waterway, uh, either now or days gone by? Well, I think my favorite aspect of the era, especially between the 1880s and the 1920s, um, by the early 1920s, the suburban or dummy trains were gone. The, the schedules got smaller and smaller. In 1922, I think you could buy a Ford Model T for $250, and you could buy it on time. Roads had improved, you know, so those were gone. But that era produced uh, just this amazing transportation system. 
I mean, uh, you could shop, you could resort, and it was very convenient. Um, the uh, suburban stations were all along the line. They were unmanned. There, of course, there are manned stations like Conway and Odin and Lancet, but uh, and they were flag stops, and you could get off and on and, and go to your cottage or, or again, shop in Harbor or shop in Petoskey. So I, it just amazes me, as you mentioned, you know, uh, we were second only to Detroit for, as far as uh, uh, commuter service uh, goes. Um, probably my favorite aspect today uh, is that families can still enjoy the beauty of the inland road as they did people did 140 years ago if you don't have a boat you can rent a pontoon or a kayak or canoe on crooked lake at uh, Riley marina or uh, uh, windjam marina and if you do have a boat there's a public access on crooked lake uh, on the crooked river a couple public accesses so you can spend a couple hours or you can go all the way to uh, uh, Lake Huron and the Sheboygan River, make a day of it. So I, I think it's wonderful that people can still enjoy that. How, how long is that? If you're going to do a day trip, if you're going to go, let's say, let's say we're going to do the full 38 miles, uh, how long would that would you expect to, to, to spend? At least a full day, you know, and you're going to stop to eat and go to the bathroom and, and do things like that. So I, I would say, you know, from, from probably about eight hours, um, and depends on how fast your boat is. You know, Burt and Mullet are, are, are big lakes. I think they're fifth and sixth largest inland lakes in Michigan. So, And you can actually uh, stay at one of the motels on the uh, on the. Uh, um, uh, Sheboygan River, uh, spend the night and then, you know, uh, make, make a return trip. So, and they have docks, they, you know, so you could just dock your boat and walk up and spend the night. So kind of experience it the way it was. You can yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. You mentioned, uh, you know, and the demise of the trains up here, part mm -hmm. of that was Henry Ford and that making that automobile available to the, to the average person. Um, yeah. 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 The demise of, and even the long distance uh, trains uh, were um, uh, the last, uh, like the Northern arrow, which is Pennsylvania's train that emanated from uh, St. Louis and uh, Chicago and Cincinnati uh, ran until uh, Labor Day of 1961. But, you know, interstate highway system, you could fly, in 67, uh, the government uh, pulled the railway post office cars, which provided income to the railroads. So, yeah, that was it was kind of the end. That must have been a end. huge blow to them at that yeah, point. Yeah, that really the mail service was because that, you know, that actually helped turn a profit on the, the uh, long-distance passenger trains. So. Here in Petoskey, the Great Depression, so it kind of went— we, 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 go, we go through the Roaring Twenties, we mm -hmm. go into the Great Depression, things really mm -hmm. slow down, and you got people buying their own cars, mm -hmm. and that's kind of a, a, um, a hit to the trains. And then, of course, like you said, uh, they, were, they, were, they were viable at that point. One of the main ways would have been the postal service. That, that must have, again, just been a, that was the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, it was. And, you know, not, not to go into it with uh, too much detail, but they were called RPOs, Railway Post Office Cars, and men and women would work all night sorting mail and, you know, delivering mail to the town. So, yeah, that was a, that was a huge blow to the railroads. Um, as I was kind of researching for our, in preparation for today, I, I came across a, a snippet that the inland water route was going to be used to deliver mail. They had one, at one mm -hmm. point used, you know, thought of utilizing that passageway right. for, for mail. Exactly. Yep. The Society is a new acquisition. It's stored in a boathouse on the river right now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about 
what you have down there? That- yeah, we're really proud of this, uh, and it took us a long time to gather enough uh, money to, to buy it, but it's a Truscott, um, uh, a replica of a, ni- a 30-foot Truscott steamer, uh, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful boat. It's uh, named after a Jean Fairburn, who was kind of the mother of our museum, uh, the Maryland Jean, and uh, we really wanted to be 100% authentic and have a steam engine, uh, but the insurance requirements and a boiler license, and we just we couldn't do that. So it has a little Yanmar diesel, you know, <laughs> kind of hidden, but it's open boat, uh, has a canopy, and it's a beautiful little boat. Yeah, we're very proud of that, and it's a the boathouse it's in on the uh, uh, Crooked River was all done by all volunteers as well from our museum. So, yeah. what are what are your plans with the with the with the launch? Well, we we had a captain. If you carry paying customers, you need a captain. Yep. We're trying to find another uh, captain to pilot the boat, uh, but we've done uh, weddings and taken people out for picnic tours, and uh, it's just a. Uh, don't expect any uh, any speed. It goes about seven miles an hour, <laughs> but it's just a really a neat a neat little craft. Yeah. You you mentioned the requirements now, the insurance requirements, and of course back in the in the heyday, things we didn't didn't have to worry about back then. No, no, not at all, not at all. What are the operation and location of the museum for those that would like to pay a visit? Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate that plug. We're uh, we're on River Street in Alanson. Lansing is uh, along US 31 as you're headed to Mackinac. We're uh, again on River Street. Our hours are uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and we're open from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, a- admission is by no donation. Uh, we've got a little, little, little jar if you want to put a dollar or two in. We appreciate it so we can keep our lights on. It's- and you got some really cool artifacts in there. Yeah, we are. We're really, some of the pictures are amazing um, of, the, of the summer camps, of the steamers, of the logging era, and the train schedules. We've got some uh, little uh, model trains that depict the dummy train and the long distance trains that ran up there and uh, outboard motors and fishing stuff and a lot of logging uh, stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating little museum. It was hard to get my son out of there without taking one of your trains the other day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and woodworking. You have a bunch of woodworking tools. Yeah, we do. Uh, there were uh, a Lanson and a Burt Lake and Indian River had a number of uh, small companies that built, built boats, uh, and some of them were quite large. The Odin was built uh, in a Lanson, and uh, uh, I can't remember the size, but it was, you know, like 50 feet long. Yeah. Well, Dave, thanks so much for talking with us today. Um, I've been your host, Christopher Struble, and I invite you to join us next time for more Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity.